We're gonna try to record this for a fourth time because the computer that I record on is dying. Uh, as am I, it feels like most days. I'm not really dying, not in any kind of immediate way. Uh, about a month ago, I hurt myself pretty badly. Um, I strained or, or partially tore something in my hip and haven't been able to sit at the, uh, the chair I use to record everything on. Uh, so this episode, episode 95, with the wonderful, amazing, brilliant Dr. Eleanor Peters, has been delayed uh, until until today. Um, I'm I'm watching Audacity uh, struggle to live to record this. Please stick with us. Um, so we've been on the delay because of the injury. Um, we're also on a delay because I am right now in pre-production on my first short film. Uh, which is a, a lot of work. Um, the magazine, the Untenured Tracks magazine, Untenured, uh, second issue available at untenured.space, um, is uh, also very time consuming. Uh, my my regular job, uh, my professor gig, uh, is an absolute chaos uh, for reasons I will not get into uh, right now. Um, and truthfully, um, if you're still listening at this point, uh, ever since everything happened at CrimCon over, I guess, a year and a half ago now. Um, I just haven't felt the same. Um, and I don't know how much need or interest is uh, in hearing from me. So uh, I am committed to getting this podcast up to 100 episodes. Um, so we'll see. Uh, so this isn't goodbye. It's just, uh, you know, smell you later. <laughs> this is episode 92 not 95 like I originally recorded and had to revive the computer to fix. And it's crashing again. <laughs> Eleanor, I'm so sorry. This is episode... This is episode 92 of Untenure Tracks. to scholars on your side of the water than, than mine. But um, I started to look at uh, murder ballads and my, uh, my interest in this is in the link between the stories that are told in these murder ballads of, you know, obviously true life crime. So, um, you know, I'm sure lots of your uh, listeners will know, but, you know, murder ballads, they kind of originate in particularly Ireland and Scotland, um, and they tell the, the true tale of a, of a death, a murder, or a disaster, or, or something newsworthy. They start off as these sorts of broadsides that are sold, particularly like around executions, public executions, as they were in the past, and these are the songs that people make of these things. And as as um, you know, um, people moved into the United States from from Europe. They took these stories with them, these these musical forms with them, and merged that with indigenous music that was uh, particularly in the southern states of, of America uh, around the Appalachian Mountains. And so, um, I'm I've been what I've been interested in is the way in which there's these murder ballads from the past. You know, they obviously mix and the stories change dependent upon the era. And so the, there's for hundreds of years, people have told these same tales, made these same songs. And, and what I found was many of the stories and the way in which you are almost invited 
to judge the victim quite often uh, the victim is often female not always but but often and how sometimes the tales lead you to have some sort of sympathy perhaps with the man um, the the protagonist has you know the, the the love triangle has gone wrong He's acting out of a, a sort of passion that that, that that knocks him sideways, and before he knows it, he's he's murdered this person that that he that he loved. And I I kind of noted that um, certainly in the British press, um, there's quite a lot of that kind of thing in the recounting of um, femicide, so intimate uh, homicide in Britain. Um, there's been many the way in which the the court case has been reported upon. Um, there's a, there was a, a few famous cases in, in in Britain of women who had sort of so called snapped and murdered abusive husbands. They were never allowed to use what was called the defence of provocation. So in in England and Wales, the 1957 Homicide Act would allow somebody to argue that a reasonable person would have acted the same as them given the provocation that that was was put forward and so this this used to be a provocation that was quite often used by men for sudden lack of control so the argument would be that she uh, the wife the partner was taunting him about his lack of virility she would taunt him perhaps about how she's having sex much better with another person. She, you know, she's been unfaithful. She's, you know, done all these things, and that reasonable man defence could be put into court, and often was, and 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 continues to be used as a defence uh, for murder. So that's what I've been working on for currently. There's a lot there, <laughs> a lot, a lot of information that you just gave us with, uh, hit us with. Um, so I guess my my first question would be, um, what what about murder ballads drew you to them in the first place? Well, um, I have been researching the the connections between crime and music for a few years now, and the origin of this really. So I've been a criminologist for a number of years and um, some of it actually came from my own background. So I come from a place in England called Birmingham and some people will realise that that's famous in terms of music for inventing heavy metal. And so, well, we like to think we invented heavy metal. I'll let other people argue that with me. <laughs> but coming from Birmingham... Um, it's a major city, it's a really big city, um, and lots of people are metalheads. There's just no two ways about it. it. It's something that a lot of people there like and do and are. And I moved away from Birmingham um, a number of years ago, and I live in the north of England. I live near Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool famous musically for other things too. And I am working on something there as well about the Beatles and Liverpool but that's probably a different discussion and I kind of noticed very much there that it's seen as a problematic music form people don't like it quite quite often it's seen as kind of thuggish or not very intelligent the heavy metal is where working class oaths you know would hang out or whatever um and i've struggled with this intellectual kind of the way in which heavy metal is portrayed and my own lived experience of it so my own lived experience of, of, of being into heavy metal is is that it's a, a network of people from all walks of life who do all sorts of different jobs they're all sorts of different ethnicities they're different gender different sexualities there's 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 no sort of what is a heavy metal fan but it feels like it's sort of very much looked down upon and so I, that's what started my interest in looking at music and crime because of the way in which heavy metal fans 
could often be perceived as being satanic mm. and finding themselves in court for things that they said or did or or dressed like and you know we we can go back over some of those those issues in in, in the past and but it's sometimes this idea of like lyrically things are making you do behaviors that you might not do heavy metal you know made me into a devil worshiper and made me become a killer you know and, and these sorts of problems that with with the, the genre mm-hmm. And one of the comparisons that I often used to say was, you know, well, you may have in certain types of metal songs about death and murder and 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 other kinds of things, but it's an art form, and that's what art forms do. And sometimes, you know, the argument is, um, well, you know, Johnny Cash sang a song that said, you know, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, and we know that he didn't do that, but that's like that's art. So I think it was just coming out in those ballads from this sort of transgressive music, um, I guess, that led led my interest to it. And um, so what I've tried to do in the work that I'm doing is bring it much more up to date to look at songs that perhaps aren't traditionally murder ballads, but do sort of depict scenes of, of violence or, or talk about murder. So... Um, if I could just give you an example, yeah. there's, I don't know how well known this song is around the world, but um, the singer Tom Jones, so particularly famous in the 60s, perhaps a little less so around the world later, and he has a song called Delilah, and in the song Delilah, he discusses how he's seen her in her bedroom light you can see you can see through the light in the bedroom window that she's having sex with another man and he stabs her to death so the song is almost like he he doesn't realize that he's doing it he sort of stands there and before he realizes it the knife's in his hand and delilah is dead and the song goes you know why 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 delilah mm-hmm. um and it's a song about a man who having observed what he believes his, his unfaithful partner stabs her to death and that's his reaction to it and so on on that level you'd think okay but it's 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 sort of an unofficial anthem for welsh rugby team and so you have this entire stadia mm. of rugby fans all singing delilah at the top of their voices and it kind of led me to think, well, how did how did a song about murdering somebody become almost like a national anthem? <laughs> um, so that that's so interesting. I mean, I I have to admit, I was not expecting you to bring up Tom Jones. Uh, I can't think of somebody who's further away from <laughs> from heavy metal <laughs> than Tom Jones is. Um, and I I I. I'm I'm flummoxed <laughs> right, right now, um, but that's that's really interesting. And I think it. Um, I was going to ask about what sorts of moral panics um, have have happened um, over there around it, because in, at least in the U.S., we are very familiar with sort of yeah. the anti-death metal and heavy metal kind of um, language, especially after the Columbine school shooting. Um, and, and this generation of, of blaming, um, and it, I mean, it, it was obviously around before Columbine too, but it seems like it really intensified in the early 2000s. Yeah, we did. We had a version of the satanic panic in, in, in the UK, but it was a little different. It was mainly around um, organized child abuse. Um, mm-hmm more than, than 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 necessarily about music and i think because because heavy metal here i think he's quite often seen perhaps as a little bit of a joke um and 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 something that um is more pantomime than anything else mm-hmm. and if you think about the, the some of the big big metal bands the british one like iron maiden or whatever you know they the, the kind of way they look, the kind of fanciful stories, you know, the, the wizard type things. And and so I don't think it ever really had that same impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was 
sort of very much taken by the the, the, the case of the West Memphis Three around mm. heavy metal, and that um, the the guys that were that were convicted of killing three young boys in what what law enforcement had understood to be a satanic mm-hmm. uh, ritual seemed to, to very much revolve around the one Damien Eccles, the, the one young man's kind of dark obsessions, you know, that he was dressed in black, he was unusual, he liked paganism, which mm-hmm. was perceived to perhaps be connected, you know, to to satanism and you know what one the one of the other guys that was that was convicted of that jason baldwin you know he said something like they 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 wanted to lock me up because i wore heavy metal t-shirts you know and i and and again as you mentioned the columbine you know it did seem to come out later that the columbine shooters weren't particularly fans of marilyn manson but that had kind of been the way that it had been 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 portrayed and as i say it's 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 too easy sometimes to to view that now we have something here in the uk that's leading the same leading to the same kinds of thoughts so um, we have this thing called uk drill now drill music comes originally i believe from chicago and it's a kind of grime rap but but very dark in terms of lyric and very sparse in terms of musical sound and uk drill is particularly popular in in a a city london so in social housing um in other major cities so it's pretty big in birmingham so the the um ethnic makeup of cities like london and birmingham is very mixed so um and these inner city areas predominantly um black young young people their parents will have or grandparents will have you know been come from the caribbean quite likely um in um what they call the windrush generation that, that emigrated uh, to england in the 50s and the 60s and quite often these are very poor areas of the city and for infrastructure is not very good and there's been a huge increase in knife crime and as, as i'm sure you know guns aren't impossible to come by in england um, but they're quite difficult but knives obviously are not and so um and there's been a, a huge rise in particularly teenagers being stabbed to death in the streets of certain cities in the uk a lot of gang affiliated violence and one of the aspects of this that the the police and the government have been um very keen to to, to shine a light at is the there's drill music mm. there's an argument that um drill artists are rapping and and writing about their what they are going to do to their gang affiliated enemy mm. um and they 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 make videos about it and they, they you know social media is the, the platform that they put this out on and so drill music has come in for some of that moral panic um that 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 other forms of music might have yeah. in, in other countries it's interesting because the the first thing i thought of was the gangster rap phenomenon in the in the late 90s in the us and a lot of the arguments made there about sort of like exactly what you were just talking about right like artists <clears throat> rapping about um violence that they've done or that they're going to do and and sort of manufacturing this this whole east coast west coast um rivalry uh that people that the public really really ate up but in actuality was probably manufactured by the by the by the labels right um mm-hmm. and wasn't ever really this as as deep of a rivalry or or hatred um um that the music made it sound like you so i guess my question is uh is there any possibility that something similar is happening happening over there with uk drill or is this like really organic like we don't like each other it's interesting we have um we have certain crime um 
at the moment that is is called county lines so what happened in in britain so it appears is that certain cities there's an influx of drugs uh, there's a saturation of the drugs market and young people who are on the periphery uh, quite often maybe they're not at school or, or they 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 are poor they're recruited to 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 take drugs to more rural locations and um, then they kind of hang out in these places and, and sell drugs so the drugs market has become quite a difficult market so nearly all illegal drugs um, in in Britain um, there's a there's an issue with how they're distributed and this is where a lot of this gang warfare is coming from so maybe it does have the same kind of mirror image of what you you were talking about then because of course that was often around crack wasn't it and and, and drug use as well mm-hmm. so it there are gangs that it is often to do with drugs rather than necessarily a kind of we just don't like each other mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that i think is causing some of the problem mm-hmm. musically there's an issue i think with taking lyrics that, that people have written and then using those in in court which which has happened here and i know it's happened in the states mm-hmm. states as well so yes i think it's a very similar mm. issue that's so interesting um i want to go back to something that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation which was um and this is purely just my own curiosity um but you had you had mentioned that murder ballads have their origin in um, work coming out of ireland and scotland and i was wondering if you could provide a little bit of background on that uh, this is one. This the one I'm actually going to say is actually one from England, um, okay. but it's, it's a similar similar sort of tradition um, in in England as it as it was in, in other places. So um, there is a song called "Pretty Polly," um, and in the song "Pretty Polly," the, there's a there's this is this is a premeditated murder in in Pretty Polly, and um, the story is uh, based on a, a a kind of almost like a poem but a certain broadside that was written called the Gosport Tragedy. So Gosport is a coastal port in the south of England and this this story is of a carpenter on, on a ship who um, when he's found that he's, he's girlfriend he's made her pregnant but he doesn't want to marry her he um kind of tricks her into going to a rural location and he kills her and buries her there um and in pretty polly the song kind of uh, when that that gospel tragedy goes over into america um, the pretty polly song continues but with a slightly different take on it um, so that it just becomes more of a, a, a story in general. Mm-hmm. So in Pretty Polly, um, just trying to get the, the, it says Pretty Polly, Pretty Polly, you've guessed about right, I dug on your grave the best part of last night. Um, and it, it becomes a, a, a song that's that's then transported across into the States. So I'm just trying to find the other versions of it. So, so the Pretty Polly song certainly gets taken into account i think in the what is quite famously the nick cave and the bad seeds i don't know they they are or around the world but they uh, they have an album called murder ballads and they do versions of old murder ballads and one Mm -hmm. is called where the wild roses grow and that's very much based on this gospel tragedy as it's come kind of round around the world and then the the other the other one that's quite well known which comes from um ireland and it was originally called um, the wexford girl and the wexford girl tells the first person story of a young man who marries his who who murders his sweetheart so um versions of the song do differ um quite often this is one where he sort of gently kills her so he, he takes care of her after he's killed her so this is one about gently throwing her in the river mm-hmm. and most of the versions of the wexford girl will talk about how this man does love her he taught he shows remorse and 
you know, and there's a line in it about her having a dark and roving eye, which suggests perhaps, you know, he thinks that she might have been unfaithful, but we don't know that for sure. And there's also a line that says, you can never be my bride, which suggests perhaps like a sort of um, cross-class kind of issue where she's not perhaps of the same status as he is. She's not a suitable wife. But this Wexford girl, which obviously Wexford is is, is, a, is a city in Ireland, you probably might know it better as the, the Knoxville girl. So that's how that changes its location. Mm. So that once it's crossed over into America, it becomes the Knoxville girl mm -hmm. and she's murdered and thrown into a local river. Mm. And that's how that, that song has sort of transported itself across. That's so interesting. And so as you're as you're talking, uh, the idea that kept like rattling around in my mind was just how how is this how these types of songs, these ballads, how how have they remained popular? They do remain really popular. So just just that that one that I was that I was talking about there. So um, the Wexford girl, um, it's from the 1600s. So the story itself is that old. Um, mm -hmm. The, the uh, country duo, the handsome family recorded it not that long ago. Folk singer uh, Olivia Cheney recorded it about five years ago. Um, you know, these songs have great longevity. Um, one, ex another example is um, Delia's Gone, which people might know the, the Johnny Cash version, Delia's Gone, which he recorded in 1994. And that tells the story of Delia Green, who was 14 and her boyfriend shoots her to death. Um, and that's in 1900. And the stories of these, these, these deaths just continue to be recounted. And um, it, I guess it just shows a fascination from people it's just a part of the human psyche to be fascinated by these kinds of dark tales these these are cautionary tales in lots of respects so you know they're cautionary tales about particularly women's behavior what's acceptable for women's sexuality at the period of time that you're looking at it and what's appropriate responses mm -hmm. um and so i guess it's just part of, of human nature you know that the, the spectacle of public executions used to, you know, have hundreds of people, thousands of people turn up to watch them. The, the, the you know, the, the tales of murder and death are the ones that would sell the penny dreadfuls back in the Victorian times. So I think it's just uh, the, the way in which people mm -hmm. just are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a, a sort of an an interesting um, step on the on the path to sort of the true crime obsessed uh, culture that we live in today. So I, I guess like the true crime stuff isn't this new thing. It's always been around, just in a in very different form. Um, I think uh, I think true crime absolutely. I think one of the things that that I'm, I'm quite interested in, I think, is the fact that we talk a lot about crime and, and the way. Uh, criminology as criminologists mm -hmm. we can talk about how crime is depicted mm -hmm. quite often on tv and film we don't really talk about it in music very much that's yeah. that's one of the things that we just don't really do so there, there is obviously a kind of academic study of murder ballads in general um you know in historical terms but I'm, it's not something that criminologists really have looked at very much is what does music, not just about music as a subculture, but what does music, what's its relationship to crime and criminology and 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 those kinds of issues? So that's 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 really where I got into it, and here I am. So changing uh, gears a little bit, you had mentioned a project uh, that you are working on. I'm not sure what what stage you are in working on it, but something related to the Beatles. And so I, as a uh, middle-aged white man living in the U.S., uh, I'm a giant Beatles fan, so I have to, I have to ask, <laughs> what, what, what are you working on? It's, it's, it's a fair question, um, you know, and um, 
I've lived in Liverpool. I'm just on the outskirts of Liverpool for about 20 years. And in the time that I've been here, the connection with the Beatles has become more and more apparent. Mm-hmm. And that sounds strange, I, I know. So I've been doing some work with a colleague. My colleague, Claire Kinsella, she r- writes very much about Liverpool as a place, as a city, regeneration. And one of the things that... the, the so in the 1980s, Liverpool was a very poor city. It had huge amounts of unemployment. It had lots of social unrest. And it was um, seen as a hugely problematic city by central government. And it's regenerated itself enormously, but it's regenerated itself by really looking at the past very much. And so um, when I first moved here, there was very little Beatles stuff, which I know people probably find quite hard to believe. Yeah, that's really surprising. They had not they had not used the Beatles as as a way in which to regenerate the city. And it's cause like, you know, if you think about Liverpool, most people think either the Beatles or they think football. Those are the two things. Soccer, obviously. Um, <laughs> so those are the two two things that people tend to think about. So um when um the Cavern Club, obviously the very famous Cavern Club was um closed down and the premises were still there but in the 1970s they they knocked it down to build to put a ventilation shaft in it that's how little that iconic place meant then uh, was that they literally just flattened it and they didn't even put the vent in it ironically so the actual cavern club as you would see it now if you go to liverpool is a reenactment of that original place so you go in it and it looks pretty much as it would have done at that time mm-hmm. but it wasn't it was a working venue you know up and up until it was actually closed down and and so you know what they've taken is the 60s memorabilia aspect of it Mm-hmm. So the Cavern Club is actually built uh, just over the road from where it actually had been. So that's that's quite a major part of the tourist mm-hmm. part of of Liverpool. The the the, um, the Liverpool's famous for the Three Graces, which are these this very famous um, coastline that it has with these very specific buildings. One of which is the Liver Building. And that's got these two liver birds on the top, hence Liverpool. So right outside there is now four huge um, statues of the Beatles, 1960s Beatles, the the, the four of them. So obviously this is a major tourist thing as well, where Mm -hmm. they stand next to the Beatles, get your photo taken in front of the liver building. There's also a museum of Liverpool, and there's also a Beatles museum, all of which very kind of music orientated. Um, and you can take uh, the Magical Mystery Tour. Um, you can get on the bus and you can be taken to all these various um, places that are connected with the Beatles, including their birthplaces. So the mm-hmm. National Trust, which is like a historical organisation, they bought Paul McCartney's childhood home mm. and left it as it was, uh, designed it to be like as it would have been in the late 1950s. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like a piece of social history. Um, Yoko Ono has actually bought John Lennon's old house mm-hmm. and that now is a similar thing. They renamed the airport, John Lennon Airport. Mm. Um, and so suddenly there's a growth in what the Beatles mean to Liverpool. Now, the Beatles left Liverpool in about 1964, never really to come back. Yeah. So the connection and the building of a city on the origins of the Beatles is quite an interesting one. So, I mean, I don't know how disappointed people are when they take the bus to Penny Lane. And it is a really unremarkable suburban (laughs) little place. There's really nothing there. Um, Mm -hmm. they, They had to, like, obviously take the sign down because people kept stealing the sign. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so there's not much there, but it's something that everybody knows, um, I guess. Um, And so it's it's about what does place mean? You know, what does does Liverpool mean to the Beatles? What does the Beatles mean to Liverpool? And and I guess, uh, you know, 
building, uh, rebuilding a city on the image of mm-hmm. of the Beatles. We never. Uh, this is this sounds really strange, but there were very there was very little tourism in in Liverpool mm-hmm. that that period of time ago. But now now it is a major tourist yeah. attraction. It is busy, busy, busy city. That's that is fascinating. Uh, I I hope to be able to make that make that trip. So when I when I get to see the unremarkable Penny Lane, I will, I will let you know <laughs> what what our reaction is to it. It's do you know what it's it's a fa- it is a fabulous city. I can say that because I don't come from it. I think mm-hmm. you know it, it's for me to say, but it is um it, it's it's of great interest. I mean, it, people who love the Beatles just really love the Beatles, and so mm-hmm. you know there is so much Beatles related um, activities that you can do in Liverpool. And people, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've I've met lots of people who have come to Liverpool from other countries, and they are so like I am so pleased to be here. This is so wonderful, and I think that's kind of how you're probably going to feel when you actually yeah. get here. Oh yeah, I'm I'm sure I will. Uh... I will I will not be looking at it through any kind of critical lens <laughs> and will very much just enjoy <laughs> enjoy being there and and being able to travel again and yes. and uh document how uh my kids react um who've grown up on the Beatles um and uh that'll be pretty fascinating. So um let's uh let's turn to talking about um, how you are able to bring your work into the classroom, because I have to imagine that students um, really gravitate to this idea of all the different ways that music has has affected them sociologically, right? Yeah, I think you can really understand a lot of society via, via music, absolutely. Um, I, as, I, I actually am a sociologist by training by by origin um but i worked for a long time in the criminal justice system and so um i am actually employed as as a criminology uh, lecturer and so i've got two main areas that i teach one is on youth justice and another one is on mainly kind of human rights type related uh, module so obviously in youth justice i do use music quite a lot trying to understand this invention of youth almost as a kind of post-war reaction, you know, so after the Second World War, growth in technology, growth in civil rights, growth in all sorts of different kind of movements in, in education in, in Britain, for example, um, and this idea of the rise of the teenager. And obviously that goes very much hand in hand with rock and roll, um, <clears throat> the way in which you've got obviously Elvis and the the big um, that, that I mean there was quite a big moral panic obviously around rock and roll in yeah. the states and and in in Britain you know the, it was gonna it was gonna warp everybody's brain it was gonna make all <laughs> the young people really stupid mm-hmm. and um, you know Elvis could only be filmed from from the chest upwards because he was so you know awfully rude and. You know, so all these things that just have a have a tendency to repeat, and that's yeah. very much what I kind of try and teach a lot of in these justices that, you know, you get you get waves almost, and and it all just comes back round again. So, and I know that the states is not dissimilar. You know, in terms of sort of youth justice, you'll have like. Uh, punitive and then maybe some welfare and then a bit more punitive and then perhaps a little bit of welfare and these things just come and go so I use music quite often in in that to obviously look at how deviant youth subcultures are portrayed how they're criminalized and how how they're dealt with in in the 1960s in in England um, we had big uh, moral panic. I mean, it was literally the moral panic. This is where it, it comes from. You know, the, the mods and the rockers fighting on mm. the beaches in, in 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 the English seaside. And this is where Stan Cohen comes with the folk devils and moral panics. And you know, as you as you pointed out with the the rap, it was wildly over exaggerated. Um, 
but you know you've got these two different musical uh, subcultures that are fighting on the beaches and um it's the end of civilization as we know it and so you know the british establishment at that time were you know obviously quite conservative and um you know these these young ruffians yeah so you know it, it's it punk and you know kind of rap and all these bits of music that i think just reflect a way in which the world changes but stays the same <laughs> and i mean <clears throat> the other my other module is, is is called justice rights in the state it's a bit of a mouthful but as i say it's very much around human rights and music is a brilliant way to explore um, a couple of these issues so one of them is around censorship and mm-hmm. um, and that's how some genres get censored and others don't um and how some people get censored and, and others don't so it, it's it's quite international so it's not just looking at at, at sort of um, britain um you know women around the world often can't play musical instruments can't sing are very much kind of restricted in their movements and their abilities to express themselves um certain cultural types um i mean just going back to the heavy metal there's there's issues for bands in places like indonesia where you know they they can be seen as satanic and problematic Mm -hmm. and they are prosecuted for for their musical um outpourings and um you know and what what who can say what whether it's obscene or whether it's you know allowed so whether there's free speech or not you know obscenity rules and laws can come into place so you know these do tend to often have racial elements to them it seems to be a lot of black music tends to tends to call foul of this mm-hmm. um and um i also use the idea of music as a form of torture or as a means of correction um you know so the the use of music either Mm -hmm. as something that seemed to be helpful in rehabilitating people from crime but also perhaps used as a punishment as well and Mm -hmm. again that links back to heavy metal that's like you know the, the old joke obviously is you know, I like all music. I like any music apart from heavy metal. So, you know, of course, heavy metal, just playing it is going to be torture. So, you know, that's that that old chestnut. But yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the use of music as a form of torture in places like Guantanamo Bay yeah. is, is, is well documented. So do you find that your students have uh, any sort of familiarity with, with the history of censorship? or Or is this something that that you get to be the uh, the sort of bearer of bad news? Yeah, I think very much so. That they're, they're, they're not um, terribly aware of it. It's, it's interesting in, in in England and Wales because we until we signed um, the Human Rights Act, so we, we've got a Human Rights Act in the year 2000, that enshrines the European Convention of Human Rights into British law. Now, up until that point, we never had a explicit uh, free speech, free expression law. So we actually probably had some of the most restrictive laws. And of course, most people, I mean, the students are obviously the same, you know, they think that censorship is something that happens in North Korea or <laughs> in China, you know, they just mm-hmm. don't really see it here. And one of the examples very much is the way in which certain music types were banned here because of perceived associations with Irish terrorism, mm. you know, so that that's very recent in in Britain's history. But there were certain laws in place there. The Pogues couldn't play quite often in places if they were singing certain songs. It was not allowed, mm. and you know, so this idea of freedom, um, I think, um, you know, it, young people are obviously more attuned to actually streaming music gaining access mm-hmm. to it via social media it's harder to censor that kind of environment and of course you know it depends of course where something is based on what censorship mm-hmm. will be so you know i think it's slightly different to, to how it was in the past yeah I'm, I'm trying to remember something that i found when i was doing research for the chapter that i wrote for your book 
um, about the, the popularity of the cranberries um, and specifically, um, I mean, I think most people know them for the song Zombie, but I, I can't remember. I remember being surprised, but I, I'm not sure why that it, that was the most popular um, song by any Irish group of like ever of all time. But I can't remember if it was popular everywhere in the world except for the UK or if it was <laughs> the most popular Irish song ever and also in the UK because it's this very it was it was weird because it, it kept coming up on lists of like most popular revolutionary types of music but <laughs> the song is very much like innocent people are being killed stop being stupid <laughs> right? yeah I, I actually i actually think we should put a plug in for the book at some yeah. point here as well the, the book entitled music and crime resistance and identity um, which yes, you you have put the chapter in, which is brilliant about protest music. It's it's absolutely kind of what we needed to keep the the edited volume off with. And I think I I I think the cranberry song "Zombie" is actually quite subtle in a sort sort of way. I don't think it sounds obviously does it like a a, a rebel song, so to speak. Yeah. Um, some of this is a bit more in your face and it was a really big hit here it was it was a big hit in, in mm -hmm. europe as well um and it, it might be because of the, the tone of it is is sort of um i mean there's much more obvious ones like u2's sunday bloody sunday which yeah. is about basically the, the, the uk soldiers shooting unarmed civilians and, and and killing them but of course that 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 wasn't a, a single as yeah. far as i'm aware um yeah but um but yeah the 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 way in which irish music has always been quite revolutionary is quite interesting i mean my my husband's irish my my youngest daughter is, is called roisin and it's it's after this roisin dove and songs in, in, in Ireland, because they weren't allowed in the past, they weren't allowed to sing about Ireland. Mm -hmm. They called Ireland Roisin Dove. It was their way of being able to sing about their love for Ireland without actually looking like they were singing about their love for Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this Thin Lizzy version of Roisin Dove, which people might be aware of. That's so fascinating. That is so... I need I need to work on this Fulbright application so I can spend some time over there just, <laughs> just and I don't even know where I would start right there there is so much I want to learn about um over there that I need to I need to I need this stupid pandemic to end um, yeah so I can come visit um what what then is your is your students reaction to to hearing about sort of the extent of censorship in music um, and, and maybe some of like the subtleties, I wanna make sure I'm asking this the right way, like mm -hmm. the subtle ways that, that music has, has affected them or maybe become anthems for their, for their own sort of rebelliousness when they were younger. Like what, how, how, how does this revelation tend to, tend to be experienced by them? I don't, know if it's, I don't know if it's because of the institution that I actually work in. Um, it's what we call a, a widening participation university. So it, it tends to take uh, young people who wouldn't traditionally, their families wouldn't have traditionally gone to university. They're probably the first mm -hmm. generation to go to university. It's also... Um, quite specific in terms of geography as well so it, this is not in Liverpool where I, where I work I work in a rural community um, in Lancashire um, and so predominantly the, the young people that we get are from that local area and mm -hmm. so the censorship in terms of things like drill doesn't really affect them massively mm -hmm. because it's not really something that they they listen to mm -hmm. um and i've also noticed over the years that there's been very few young people into any sort of subcultures so predominantly they they all very much looked similar mm -hmm. and whereas when i was at school you know you would know who like the rockers were and who mm -hmm 
what we would call the trendies or the casuals or perhaps you call them the jocks. You know, mm -hmm. we would have all these different, and everybody, maybe it's like the breakfast club, you know, everyone has their own kind of, um, and, and I really noticed this wasn't happening very much for, for many years. And now that seems to have changed a little bit. It does mm -hmm. seem to be a little bit more in the way of like kind of subcultural tribalism. Perhaps you can identify a little more the, 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 the genres that people seem to like. And I was always very surprised by how little they seem to fix their identity around music. Mm -hmm. Whereas maybe that's just because we're all getting a bit older. But that <laughs> seems to be something that we all did. You know, most mm -hmm. people would say, you know, I'm a goth, I'm a rocker, I'm a punk, I'm a... And that seemed to me to be less of a thing that young people would identify with. And that, again, I think is to do with when you've got access to everything, mm -hmm then you curate this is one thing that i've learned from young people they've told me all the time that they don't like particularly just one type of music they mm -hmm. stream and they curate from all sorts of different places and so you know that's they consume that in a completely different way than, than anybody perhaps over the age of 35 might have mm -hmm. hmm. yeah i I'm remembering a time, so I teach juvenile delinquency, um, but I teach it very much as a sociology of adolescence course, um, because that way we can spend a lot of time on like all of the non-crime stuff and like I'd, and really just on identity development. Um, and I, I remember asking one particular class about music that they listened to when they were younger, that, they're, that, that was rebellious and that their parents um, either didn't understand or, or just didn't like and would complain about um and they they had no answer for me and i was like there has to have been something there has to be something that you listen to that your parents just referred to as noise right and then one young woman raised her hand and was like taylor swift <laughs> like oh no 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 bless your heart but taylor swift is not this is not what we're looking for here <laughs> I think I think you've hit on on a on a really interesting point here because I think that as older people we've kind of taken their generational youth away almost in that sense because because we carry on being young or we yeah. extend <laughs> that period forever yeah and we we don't think it's unseemly to be you know wandering around in a corn t-shirt anymore <laughs> even if you're 45 now maybe that they don't have a, a rebellion that my children rebel by listening to tuneful very nice pieces of music mm -hmm. that both like nice tunes and mm -hmm. um, to me that's just not on board. <laughs> Yeah, no, you you raise an interesting point, right? I saw that quote, I think, last week or two weeks ago, where Oprah Oprah said that 50 is the new 30. And I feel like a decade ago, people were saying 40 is the new 20. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now, like, I wonder what the effect is going to be of, of this generation of people constantly at this, like, riding this wave of, like, we're not old yet. We're not old yet. <laughs> 70 is the new 40. Mm -hmm. It really is. I do feel for them in a way because I do think that. I do think younger people are more likely to be doing the same things as their parents. Now, mm -hmm. that was quite common, wasn't it? Sort of in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, you know, young people, they would look similar to their parents. Yeah. And then we had all that kind of post-war where everyone was carving out all these different identities. They were yeah. like making a real um, statement about being a different generation. They were talking differently. They were walking mm. differently. They were dressing differently. Their music was different. Yeah, it was that turn that racket off. What well, there's not even mm. a tune in there, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And almost since the turn of the century, the last century, it does feel like it's kind of merging a little back. You know, the, you, you, you know, you dress like your children or you, they don't dress like you. You know, I, I shop in the same place as my children shop in. 
you know, and maybe that's really, you know, I mean, I'm just embarrassing mom. I don't know, you know, but, <laughs> but, you know my eldest is nearly 20 and, you know, it wouldn't be unheard of for us to be shopping in the same place, which mm -hmm. I would never, ever have shopped in the same place as my mom. Mm -hmm. you know. That's so, that's so interesting. So your, your students don't really, this is all just brand new information. There's no. Hmm. No, yeah. And I, I, I just think that they, they just never really thought about not having access to things like that it yeah. just because that is just there. And, mm -hmm. you know, as I say, I think that, you know, one of the, the, one of the problems with, with drill, for example, is that um, because they can't usually put shows on, Mm -hmm. because it, it, they can't get licenses to put shows on. One of their main techniques of distribution is the the internet. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the way in which they will make a career is via YouTube. Mm -hmm. Now the police have been taking their videos down, you know. Mm -hmm. um, they are removing them. The, the police will ask YouTube to remove these videos and they will take mm -hmm. them down so you know there is a censorship of certain young people's mm -hmm. activities and their free expression but mm -hmm. i guess as soon as it gets taken down it gets put back up again and you know so so i guess that that, that most young people don't even realize that stuff gets taken away that's mm -hmm. mm. so I, I i feel like a broken record i just think this is that's so <laughs> it's so interesting right because Especially, I mean, both are both the U.S. and the U.K. have very different histories with censorship, but I guess very similar in a lot of ways. And so I keep, I keep coming back to like the video nasties, right? And and how, um, at least my understanding of of that specific sort of policy was very just blanketed, and we're not providing any kind of um, rhyme or reason. Just somebody told us that this was inappropriate, so we're going to to obliterate it um, and 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 really form a bubble around the entire island, um, and and how much that is different now, right? With because of because of the internet and because of of digital technology, and and you know if if the police say take this down, we'll just put it right back up, and like that that sort of rebelliousness um, in the face of like this overwhelming authority was just not possible before you know and it, it it kind of i guess it, it kind of builds up to like a, uh mm, just realizing like the illusion of of power in government isn't isn't really as um it's not all as all powerful and all knowing as as it might want to want people to think it is right yeah but you'd hope I mean, you know, we we have um, we have a government at the moment that's very embroiled in huge amounts of scandals and all mm -hmm. sorts. Um, I think lots of people would perceive sort of Boris Johnson as being sort of like I don't know Donald Trump light possibly. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so there there are certain laws around the internet that that the government are trying to bring in even more one of the interesting aspects as well is the, the authoritarian turn following the coronavirus restrictions um, in, in the UK. There was quite a lot of lockdown mm -hmm. and lots of draconian laws put into place. And now the government are trying to put through a bill that will prevent protest or at least severely curtail protest. Now that's something that I think my students have been quite alarmed by when they've they've come across this. So you know, this is about not making noise on protests. Now all protests make noise. I mean, mm -hmm. that's part of the whole thing. Um, you can get a ten-year jail sentence for certain aspects of breaching this particular bill. So it's not quite law yet. It's going through Parliament, and I think that the the young people that have been teaching on, on the human rights module are very scared by um, and because because there's been a kind of movement as well 
following Black Lives Matter, which has made its way to, to, to Britain and has been quite influential. Um, and of course, obviously, the history is different, but the history of colonialism is very strong in, in, in Britain. And young people have been at the forefront of removing a lot of statues of slave owners. So we have statues celebrating slave owners for reasons that, you know, nobody can fathom. And, um, you know, young people have been at the front of tearing these down. And um, there was a guy called Colston, Edwin Colston, and young people, they pulled his statue down outside the University of Bristol and threw it in the river and this was widely celebrate celebrated as you know something that was the right thing to do so i feel like restrictions around protest um uh, is something that young people were you know very concerned by that this might happen preventing them from you know obtaining social justice and in, in the issues that matter to them well we have we have covered a lot of ground and i've taken up a lot of your time um, and uh, I will say it again, this has been such an interesting conversation, Eleanor. I feel like we could we could talk about this all day, um, but I need to let you go. I've taken up so much of your time. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank for... you. Have um, you got what you want out of this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. For more Untenured Tracks, please go to untenured.space to access our archives or go to patreon.com slash untenured to help support us.